This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hey, everybody, stick around after the show. We have TechCrunch's Jordan Crook here to tell us all about the upcoming early stage event for founders, and I think she has a discount code, so we'll see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Natasha Mascarenas, and joining me is the wonderful Alex Wilhelm. How are you, Alex? I'm tremendous. We have an incredibly nerdy topic today. We have the right people for it. I've got time, and I've got some fresh tea. I'm I'm ready to go. Let's do this. No, it's going to be really fun. And we're going to get into the pros and cons of equity crowdfunding, which is now a week old with its new guidelines. I can give a quick background and then we'll introduce our wonderful guests if that sounds cool. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, perfect. So in the olden days, founders could raise up to $1.07 million through equity crowdfunding via this thing called the Reg CF offering. The SEC basically increased that by five times about a week ago. So now people can raise up to five million, which is actually exciting. Well, $1 million after fees and getting all the the payments figured out wasn't that much kind of net capital, but five million makes it a much more attractive overall option, I think, for entrepreneurs of, uh, I don't know, pre-seed through almost Series A at this point. Slava Rubin, who is the founder of Indiegogo, actually did a, a funny little article for us called A Report Card for the SEC's New Equity Crowdfunding Rules. And apparently, like, it costs up to 100000 or more if you are a founder raising in this way. So, yeah, it actually did make a difference to see that size grow. And then there's a ton of platforms that I feel like we've both seen pop up in our inbox over the years. There's WeFunder, SeedInvest, and a newer one, Republic, that's getting a lot of attention. Yeah, I feel like Republic's come out of nowhere in terms of my awareness of it, and I need to do more digging into their business model and so forth. But with these new regulations, Natasha, are we expecting to see, I don't know, more entrepreneurs pursue this type of of fundraising? Yeah, I definitely think we will. I mean, people are already doing it the day of, which I think is a perfect time to introduce our first guest, the founder of Gumroad, Sahil Lavingia. How are you, Sahil? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So Gumroad did a crazy thing. Tell us about said crazy thing. <laughs> yeah. So on Monday, March 15th, uh, the, the day the SEC increased the cap on Reg CF from one to five, we went out to raise $5 million and we did. We closed the 5 million by just about 12 hours into it. So we ended up raising 5 million from about 7,303 individuals, including Elizabeth, who, who put in a uh, hundred bucks. And I guess, Sahil, you just gave away our other guest who I was going to do a very dramatic introduction for. Um, We have the wonderful Elizabeth Yin, who is a founding partner of Hustle Fund. Elizabeth, thank you so much for also joining us. Thank you for having me here. If I can put in $100 into other crowdfunding campaigns and get on a show, great. (laughs) Yeah, no. And I mean, now I want to hear from Alex, too. I mean, how excited are we that this is a reality 
for founders, for entrepreneurs, for even investors who are using this to finance bits and pieces of their operations going forward? Oh, I'm just glad we have Sahil here on the show because if people know the Gumroad story, it was a venture-backed company that I don't think got to its Series B and essentially downsized to just you, Sahil. If I recall the, the blog posts of yours that I've read over the years, not only did you just keep plugging away at it, you've turned it into a business that has attracted actually a little bit of angel money in this $5 million round. So I'm curious, vindication after all of, the, <laughs> all of that work? Is that what you're feeling? A little, a little bit to be, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had a lot, it's, we're almost, you know, nine years, 10 years into this journey. Uh, so it feels, it feels good. And it, I think more importantly, it, 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 it feels like not just vindication for, for, for me, but also for our creators, you know, uh, like this is, it's a really cool thing. I think that our creators who a lot of them stuck with us, you know, they saw the layoffs on TechCrunch. Thanks for that, guys. <laughs> yeah, <no worries. laughs> but, uh, you know, they saw the layoffs and they're like, what's going on? And I was like, you know, like we're making this hard change, but we think we'll, we'll think, you know, we think we'll get through it. It just might take a little while. We can raise money, which is nice because we want to grow the team and, and do things, but we don't have to necessarily get on the hamster wheel, quote unquote, right, of venture, of venture capital necessarily. And so it's nice to find maybe like this kind of third way potentially between sort of bootstrapping or self-funded or whatever people call it these days versus like venture capital. I think crowdfunding, especially crowdfunding from your customers, from your community, like I really think that might be a, a whole new way, uh, you know, for, for investors. Yeah. You know, one thing that struck out to me, obviously, is Gumroad has this really key line that makes sense for crowdfunding. It's a creator economy tool. And I was wondering, as just a founder and zooming out, if you think that this kind of fundraise makes sense for companies that maybe don't have such an obvious tie-in or don't have a founder with an audience like yours. I mean, we also talked about your rolling fund on the show a couple of times. And so it's clear that, you know, you've been you have an audience that's willing to bet on you financially. So tell me if you think it's like kind of an everyone kind of fundraise too. Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely I think it's more accessible than VC, you know, for many, many, many people who haven't been able to get any exposure to that uh, really uh, based on their geo or any other uh, sort of attributes to the background or anything like that. So I do think it is more accessible, but certainly the people who will be best suited to take advantage of this are people who have that alignment, that clear alignment with their with their customers or their community. Definitely, I think the creator economy, I hope that this becomes kind of like a, a default, right? Like creators should be asking, hey, this is possible. Why can't I invest in this you know, support financially? I, I do think there are other examples. Like I think Helena from House is a really good one that I would love to convince to do this. You know, I really think any any breakout startup, Notion, Clubhouse, like I think they could all all do this. I think the creator economy is sort of growing in terms of the, its scope, you know, day by day. The other thing that I hope to see is that VCs will allow other people to invest alongside them. So my rolling fund, I hope to do that with. But I would I would love to see, you know, like imagine if Andreessen did the latest Clubhouse round and then they raised crowdfunding on, you know, next, next to that round, of course, you know, 5 million, it's not a huge amount of, of money for, you know, a startup that's now valued at over a billion dollars. But, you know, I think, you know, 5,000 people investing a thousand bucks each, like that can be quite meaningful for, for Clubhouse and, and certainly for the community. Elizabeth, I, I want to bring this over to you. I'm curious, one, are startups in your portfolio pursuing at least talks about raising money in this way? And if so, are you encouraging them to do so? Or do you want to keep them, and I mean this politely, inside of your economic orbit? <laughs> well, it, it's a mix. And I think actually it comes down to less about what I would like or what VCs like and, and more about what makes sense for the company. To Sahil's point, 
if a company potentially has an audience who could be funders, where it's more of a community focused type of startup or something where you could really imagine rallying a bunch of people around it, then it makes sense. And two of our portfolio companies have successfully done campaigns on Republic. And then we do have a handful of others who are considering it as well. But if you don't have those qualities, then maybe it doesn't make sense. And an example of that might be, I don't know, maybe a, a true B2B enterprise company and you have one pilot with some B2B old stodgy customer, you know, <laughs> who is putting in $100,000 of revenue into your business right now, it probably doesn't have mass general appeal. Yeah, I think. Well, actually, no, I'll toss to Alex because you said the word, his favorite word in the world, which is enterprise software. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking about enterprise SaaS as the obvious like stick out here. Like, you know, you're not going to go to like, well, we have a we have a LOI from Oracle. Now we're going to go fundraise from our, our fans. You don't you don't have any fans. No one cares, you know. But I mean, what's funny about this is I think we've seen a general drift towards B2B investing amongst early stage investors in the last couple of years as SaaS has taken over the world. And maybe this is just going to be a way for consumer-focused operations to raise money for businesses that may not have been as attractive to VCs as rock-solid, stable, long-term software contracts. I, I don't know if that'll work out, but that's the way, Natasha, that I've been kind of dividing this in half. Yeah, I mean, I think long-term, in order for equity crowdfunding to actually become mainstream, it needs to be more than just Gumroad and companies like Clubhouse that can raise this way. I don't know if that's possible given the current platforms or where we're at. And I think obviously we're a week in, so I'm not trying to put all the pressure on this new rule, but I think it's worth pointing out that it could just be a one-off at times. But Sahil, tell me if you disagree with me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, like what, you know, Republic and Refunder and a lot of these other uh, platforms existed. I mean, props to them, by the way, like they decided to build this stuff when the cap was a million dollars, knowing how difficult it was going to be and how small, you know, inherently the volume, the volume is. I do think even B2B enterprise, like, you know, for example, if you're, if you're the Saster team, right, you have this huge audience of people, you could, I think, seed a company and offer that deal potentially to your community. It doesn't necessarily have to be customers of, of that B2B software itself. So I think that's one, you know, one thing that we'll, we'll start to see happen, but I'm just excited to see like if Gumroad and other startups do this, then there's going to be more TAM effectively for startups to actually build, you know, software for this market. Right. So I hope that like the Republic offering, like th it's the worst it's ever going to be. It's going to get better and better and better. And hopefully it's going to get cheaper and cheaper to, to offer these things over time too. So hopefully, you know, it's just as cheap and just as fast as doing a safe. Right. And then all of a sudden, I think it, it can be a lot more attractive. I mean, I think both of you embody something that's super important for this kind of fundraise, too, which is building and tweeting in public. Elizabeth, your Twitter threads are amazing, and I genuinely use them for research. And then when Sahil opened up his LP meetings for anyone to see, that was also a beautiful thing as a journalist to get that kind of access. Tell me, I guess, what are some things that founders who are thinking about this kind of fundraise should definitely prioritize? before they come to a platform like Republic? I, I mean, I think, you know, the new rules are now live and they will be live forever. So, you know, people don't have to say, oh, I need to crowdfund. I need to take advantage of this today. You can start thinking about opening up the books a little bit and, and, and having that dialogue with your potential customers, potential funders in the, in, you know, in the future. I think it's really important that you don't think of this like, oh, wow, there, I can raise 5 million bucks tomorrow, right? Like this is a thing that, even before the regs went live, you know, I'd been tweeting and building in public and sharing a lot of this stuff the last couple of years, 
when these new rules went live, it, it was more just like, oh, I can be I can be here on day one because I already did all the all the work, right? And now I think people, founders who know that this is a possibility are starting the work now. So it might take some time. They're, they're all good practices. I think emailing your, your customers, you know, emailing your investors, like you may do like your monthly numbers, having calls with them, answering their questions. Like you basically are pitching people in a, you know, in sort of asynchronous fashion over time. And so when you commit to this crowdfunding campaign, like you'll be in a really good place to execute on it. The other thing I'd mention is part of the rule changes on Monday where you can test the waters now. So you can actually gauge demand over time. So I expect that via Twitter, via, you know, the onboarding emails of your product, via other places, you'll actually be able to say, Hey, we're thinking about doing it in this way. If we get enough demand, so like fill out this form and, you know, we'll let you know if that happens. So I'm, I'm excited to see like how people experiment with actually like getting that demand sort of generated, you know, before the campaign begins, because ideally you already know if this campaign is going to work or not by the time you do it. This is going to ruin product hunt. I just realized because not everyone's going to tie their product hunt launches to like, also you can give us money, you know, show up, use it or bring a checkbook. It's going to be totally commercial now. Oh no. Angelist is really, uh, has a lot of, uh, yeah, hands in lots of different buckets here. Yeah, yeah, they do. Well, that's because it's like six people that just sit behind the scenes and think about things and then plug into them. I mean, you can't knock you can't knock the hustle, Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> sorry, how many times oh, no. have you heard that terrible joke? Like seriously, every meeting. <laughs> yeah, the moment I said it, I was like, oh, I've brought the cliche to the table. <sighs> Alas, <laughs> I have a technical question about all this stuff, guys. Because one thing that I know happened, I think, back in the Jobs Act, was that it expanded the number of investors you can have. While you're still private, I think it was to a thousand from 500 or something like that. In this world, if I go to Republic and I raise from a thousand people, does that all kind of get aggregated into one SPV? Or do I end up with a thousand people like Elizabeth with a hundred bucks into the Gumroad cap table? How does that work out? Yeah. So I think some platforms have their own different approaches, but in my case, it's a crowd safe. So it's a variant of the safe in which everyone sits on the cap table exactly under a single line item, single SPV. And I believe Republic or a representative of that group, basically, if there's any need for them to, you know, say yes to something that sort of they act as the liaison on behalf of these 7,300 other, other investors. Elizabeth, does that track with what you've seen? I don't know anything about the legal aspects, but I can tell you with the number of investors that Sahil has brought in through this crowdfunding platform, if this were not the case, he would need to be going public like right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I actually asked Sahil this when we interviewed him for the story, which I was like, are you just adding, asking for like a hot mess to deal with? And it seems like people aren't emailing you for questions every time because it, through your, kind of like what you were doing on Twitter, it's, it's maybe saving you some time dealing with at least the questions. Yeah, I, I do, yeah, ideally you're able to have these conversations at scale, right? If someone emails me, uh, three people email me a certain question, I'll just go on Twitter or Clubhouse or I'll address it as part of the next board meeting. I think it was important to set the expectations here that you know, you're putting in a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks and I'll try to email you once a quarter with an update. You can sit on the board meeting, et cetera. It, it will be interesting though, I think to see in the coming years, there's a liquidity event for Gumroad or there's something like what I assume that, you know, dealing with that demand, even though they are one SPV, right? They can always email me directly, right? So we'll see. We'll see what, what that looks like long-term. I do want to transition us a little into some of the tensions or cons or just red flags to look out for with this type of fundraising. Elizabeth, in one of your threads on Twitter, you mentioned the concept of knowing if your investors are value add or not. Well, I mean, taking a step back, I'm, I think that the holy grail for the private markets is actually to be as much of a free market as public markets, meaning 
one of the big problems just in general with startups and fundraising traditionally has been, it's really hard to raise from VCs because you don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. You don't know how to find them. You don't know how to pitch them. And there are not that many of them. And then over time that has started expanding because a bunch of VCs have, you know, started their own VCs, et cetera. So they're now more investors, which gives people more choice, which is great. But this really opens up the floodgates where now you have literally everybody can be an investor, right? So the next level problem then is, okay, well, now you have all these people you could potentially be raising money from. Ideally, you want to be raising money from people who can also help your company beyond their money. And so that can take the shape of a lot of different things. It could be helping with you with your, your pitch deck for a future fundraise. It could be you know feedback on your website or the product or, or whatever it is. And I'm sure actually with Sahil's raise, you know, a number of his funders are also customers, actually, such as myself. And that just adds a little bit more skin in the game. You know, if there's a problem with Gumroad, like I'll have no qualms like voicing that, right? Because I want them to be successful. So in the same node, ideally, you want to be getting investors who are, quote, value add in some of these other ways. And so if you think about sort of what does the next iteration of crowdfunding look like, ideally, you can somehow pick at scale. Now, obviously in this case, it's really hard to pick 7,000 people or whatever, but is there a way that you can kind of pick based on, I need these people, these skill sets, or I want all my customers to get in or whatever it is, like that would be optimal. So essentially allowing you to say like, anyone can buy this equity crowdfunding, but you have to be a Gumroad customer or creator or partner or whatever it is. So it isn't just like I show up and buy, well, I mean, I couldn't, but four and a half million of the round, ha ha ha, and exclude all of his creators from the event. But can't you do multiple equity crowdfunds now in a single year? Isn't there now like a 30-day timer on this versus like 180 days before? Yeah, so you can technically do a crowdfunding round, I believe, yeah, every 30 days, but the cap is still there, right? So if you're raising 5 million, so Gumroad, for example, the soonest we could raise another dollar via the same regulation would be March 15th, 2022, we could raise $5 million. That's not nearly as cool as I thought it was. I've, well, that's what I get for spreading fake news on my own show. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you can you can do like a million, a million, and then a million, and then a million. But then once right. you hit five, you have to you have to wait. But okay. Alex is you know it's not just customers who are helpful. Like let's say that the founders of Clubhouse or you know Zoom or you know the the Notion management team. Let's say they all went to Sahil and was like, actually, you know, we're really interested in investing, and like let's do this integration, this partnership where now you use Clubhouse and you can now I don't know tip people or whatever. Sure using Gumroad, like that would be incredibly useful as well, even if the founders of Clubhouse don't use Gumroad. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like the idea of being able to invest in partners, customers, and so forth. But to me, the, the coolest thing that I've read lately was actually Sahil's post that came out, I think it was on uh, on Monday, when he called this kind of like an IPO to some degree, because it, it let other people participate in, in the value creation process. One thing that I've become increasingly uh, annoyed about is how much value creation is contained in the, in the private markets, leaving very little upside for folks in the public markets. I'm going to press um, Ollie from Databricks about this because I'm kind of annoyed they didn't go public and instead push the valuation up to $29 billion, keeping all the gains essentially constrained to a very few number of hands, a couple of employees and some investors. I, I think it's lame. And so my very democratic, soft, squishy side, the, the heart of me wants this to be a way for more folks to be able to participate in the world, Elizabeth, where you and your cohort of investor pros have managed to take a lot of the gains. You know, I, I want more folks to have access to that. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this does a lot for that in time. Maybe it won't, but you know, hope springs. I think the retail investor 
is probably the last stakeholder here that we should talk about, which is how to make sure they don't get screwed over. Obviously, the SEC thinks they should have an opportunity. I will never argue against opportunity, but I will argue against bad campaigns, potentially making people waste their money. I think $100 as a minimum is a really good way to make sure people don't give their whole life savings. But what if $100 is that life savings? Yeah, that's a super, I mean, that will happen, right? Like, I think what sort of part of the democratization of something is that it enables, you know, bad actors to to find success too, which I think will happen. I think all of these crowdfunding platforms have to vet each deal. So every public looks at every single deal. I assume WeFunder does the exact same thing. Like these, these platforms will not be open to anybody for a long, long time. I think for that reason. I, I think we, we will see fraud, but it's just part of it's just part of it. You know, people can people can go to the lottery, people can go gamble, people can do all sorts of stuff. I think as long as the SEC says, hey, you're limited to maybe investing 10% of your net worth or 10% of yearly income, I think they can mitigate the downside qu- quite significantly. But certainly, yeah, it will it will happen. I think with Gumroad, you know, we had a maximum check size of a thousand dollars. So that was our way of making sure that no one was like, oh man, this is gonna moon. Here's 50K. And then, you know, that also means like, I'm going to get a lot more emails from that person going forward too. So I think there are ways to, to kind of mitigate it. I would say the other concern is less about fraud and just more about like fair pricing, right? Because the founder in this case, like I could set the terms, whatever I wanted. So I could have said $200 million valuation, 300 million, 500 million, a billion, who knows? And that probably, frankly, would have been enough demand. There's enough people who just want to do this who haven't had the chance to do it, right? They, they're just in, it's a thousand bucks, who cares, right? They're, you're not doing it to become a millionaire anyway. I could have done that. And I, you know, I didn't because I wanted to be, I don't know, a good ambassador for this new thing, blah, blah, blah. But I think that is where a lot of the concern will be is like retail investors don't know how to price a series A, series B company, certainly not a seed company, pre-seed company. And so there's a lot of manipulation that can happen have not not dissimilar to you know a lot of the VC complaints about Y Combinator valuations, right? Uh, which they've had historically. You get ten points for bringing up YC the week of Demo Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, there, there's a lot of ways to get to get screwed as an investor that are already allowed and legal and prominent, and it seems to be okay so far. Just one tiny thing about that. I mean, like as we're talking, I, I'm thinking about ways that I might want to participate in future equity crowdfundings, and one of them is to support art that I love. Like if, if if a band that I love, like Trivium, who have gotten really big on streaming and doing more community stuff during COVID because they're not touring, if they did a crowdfund to do something for the band and I could buy like, you know, a thousand bucks of Trivium shares or whatever, oh, forget the valuation, I would just do it. Much better with NFTs and NFTs are already turning into little buckets of fraud and we were very nice to them. So I feel like we're being more censorious towards this regulated concept than we were towards, you know, options trading at Robinhood and NFTs, which are in you know, they're just little bits of code. So Alex, actually double click into the Robin Hood point because I think it's a good one. Well, so before the show, we were talking a little bit about the tension between platforms and revenue. And, you know, if you're a Republic, you have an incentive because I think they probably make money on a per campaign basis to some degree. They're going to have an incentive to allow more campaigns over time to let themselves keep growing. A bit like how Robin Hood makes most of their order flow revenues from options. And so they have a, on one hand, they want to protect users from themselves. On the other hand, that's where the revenue comes from. There's a tension there. And so it'll be interesting to see how Republican WeFunder and so forth do keep the standards high or not over time to allow more or fewer projects and therefore revenue to take part. At the same time, though, I'm still bullish. I don't want to sound like a hater, but I, I am thinking about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in this first inning, that's where we're going to see some problems specifically around valuation, as well as on actual deal terms on the docs that are signed. For example, I know a company where they did a crowdfunding campaign 
company was quite successful, but the participants of the crowdfunding campaign signed a different doc that did not require the company to actually pay back those multiples. They had the option at their discretion to pay anything above 1x. Now, most people are not going to read tons of pages of legal docs when you sign up to do a crowdfunding campaign. So you don't often know what you're getting. And incentives are not really aligned in the sense that, that all of these crowdfunding platforms certainly do some due diligence, but they're not investing in the deal. So they are not like they don't go to bat for you. They're not negotiating legal terms for you. And so I think there, there are some pieces that don't quite align right now. And that's something that, you know, people should certainly be aware of. This is the debate I've been having internally at TC all week, which is I think Republic has the responsibility to make sure the campaigns on its site are good deals in some way for people and are communicating the risks very clearly on the top. Because let's say you lose your money on a campaign, which you probably will if you are investing nine times out of 10. And not in Gumroad, though. The yeah, one out of 10 is Gumroad. I'm also not making any promises there either. <laughs> and neither style. Um, but I think, like, wouldn't Republics get screwed long term if everyone's like, that's the place you go for scammy campaigns? Why does that not matter? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, like you have the same thing with, you know, non-equity crowdfunding, right? With uh, you have Indiegogo, you have Kickstarter, you have a bunch of different sort of platforms. And definitely Kickstarter in the beginning was really specific about the quality of the campaign. And over time, they've kind of loosened it up a little bit as as I I guess a lot of it has been automated and, and et cetera, et cetera. But Kickstarter still deals with this, right? Where like, imagine if Gumroad was one of the nine out of 10, right? Like, a year from now, Gummer goes bankrupt. That's going to reflect really, really badly on Republic and on equity crowdfunding generally. So yeah, definitely it is a sort of a thing that they should be doing. And one of the things that's baked into Republic's sort of business model is that they actually take 2% of the crowd safe as equity for themselves. So they have this at least a little bit of alignment with the companies that they get to pick. They're almost like an investor in that sense where they're picking the companies that they want to be aligned with, that they want to invest in as well. So there's that at play too. I'm excited about the types of companies we're going to see. One of my favorite examples of this is juked.gg, which I think went through either tech stars or 500 startups. I've known the founder from the esports world forever. And so it was so much fun to see one of my oldest passions show up in the startup world. And they raised the full 1.07 on Republic. And I wrote about that because I wanted to write about esports and he was a perfect excuse for it. But I don't know if that business at its nascent form with a kind of ad-driven model and a focus on community really was going to be venture-backable at that stage. Now, it could be in a year or two with some scale, but I mean, gosh darn, how cool is it that they're going to build a real business, hire people, and build a software company, essentially, You know, in a way that wasn't possible 10 years ago? That makes me really excited because I love an indie project, period. I think I'm tired of writing about, and Natasha, sorry for this, uh, B2B SaaS. It'd be fun to cover some other stuff for a while. Even startups, right? Like I, I you know, I, I got a text from a friend, uh, Gary G from the Bucketlist family. He just posted a YouTube video saying why, why you shouldn't invest in Bucketlist Studios, which is an animation studio that he wants to fund. <laughs> and they're oversubscribed immediately, right? The whole video was like, why you should not do this. Please don't do this. We're not in it for the money. This is a long-term bet, family over business, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is you have fans. These fans, by the way, would have given you money for no equity, right? They would have they would have kickstarted your project. So I think that's another way to look at it is like, look, this is probably going to go to zero, just like a lot of Kickstarter campaigns do. But if it doesn't, if Oculus does sell for a billion dollars to Facebook, then maybe we'll all see a little bit here, right? So I think as long as you message it like that, like 
there's the amount of demand, like the people want to invest in the things that they use. And I think local businesses, restaurants, like who knows in a pandemic, right? Like what happens if so many of the businesses were community owned, right? In, in some sense, like I, I think a lot of businesses would have had a different fate and, you know, Arlen Hamilton with backstage, like, I think we'll start to see like a lot of movie theaters, like who knows what kind of use cases and what kind of businesses will get funded in this way, because most businesses are not going to hundred X there's no, that's not even on the table for, for the you know, vast majority of businesses, but you know, they, they might outperform the S and P 500 or like whatever, you know, whatever I'm used to investing in, right. My, my Vanguard ETFs, like I would be happy to put in a little bit of my net worth. Like into- me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't, don't knock ETFs. That's like, that's my entire net worth. I, I have fidelity ETFs. I'm Journalists just saying. can't invest in goddamn stocks. Anyways, I feel like Sahal, what you're saying also frames the investments more as donations than a threat to the future of venture capital as an asset class, which makes it a lot less sexy as a topic. And I do think that maybe that's closer on the spectrum to the truth of what it's going to be than replacing the seed round. But Elizabeth, maybe tell me your two cents on on how this impacts the future of VC as an asset class anyways. <laughs> yeah, I know it's always exciting to see how you can be down with the VCs. <laughs> Anti-VC, obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually think that it can be fairly collaborative. And this is sort of a new angle where in the VC world, one of the things you see happening, crowdfunding aside, is you see a lot of these, I don't know what you call them, operator VCs. I mean, Sahil's actually one of them, in, you know, sort of wearing a different hat, right? You have people who are either angel operators or VC fund operators or whatever you want to call them. And very often they don't have super large funds. They're not managing a billion dollars or even a hundred million dollars. And so they tend to be fairly collaborative. Perhaps there's a world that emerges here where you actually see that these two trends kind of combine. And so it's like, okay, actually solving the problem of signaling or whether the deal's right or whether the docs are right or whatever, Sahil puts his money in into some company and then his followers want to co-invest alongside him. Like that's pretty exciting in itself, right? Especially if you have the right company where the community also is fairly aligned with that company. Like that would actually be pretty magical. Everything we're talking about is about the, the money in community because either the the angel operator VC brings their community with them or maybe VCs invest and the community also gets to you know put in 5 million at the same terms as we discussed earlier. I think this just goes to show that the creator economy slash community slash being an influencer in the kind of broad sense is no longer something that you do and then aspire to get some free stuff on Instagram, but it's the way to build a very monetizable community in a non-crass sense. I don't mean that in a gross way whatsoever. And as a just a general fan of art in a very broad sense, like that's so exciting to me. And I'm I hate to sound optimistic and positive, but I think this could actually be rather exciting over the next five to 10 years. And, you know, kinks aside, there's going to be some mistakes and some messes. But I mean, no one really sits around going, Kickstarter's not going to work because three things blew up in its first year. They got through it, you know, and I think Republic's already shown enough with the the prior limits that there's demand for this. So it'll, it'll be fun to see, you know, how long this lasts in the early phase and, and kind of what the maturity of it looks like. But I'm I'm stoked, frankly. I think we're all agreeing to agree that it's a net positive. And I love that our show is called Equity because I feel like this is as meta as it's going to get on here. But I, I think that's all the time we have for today. Elizabeth Sahil, thank you both so much for sharing the full picture of Equity crowdfunding. Alex, you are a delight as always. And Equity listeners, we will hear you and listen to you on Friday. 
That is our show, but we are very, very lucky to have our own Jordan Crook here to tell us a little bit about our upcoming early stage event that I am incredibly excited about. So Jordan, at a high level, what is early stage and how is it different from other kind of tech crunch events that people might know of? So unlike other tech crunch events, we don't have a main stage at early stage. It's all breakout sessions all the time. So we have experts across fundraising, marketing, operations, essentially any question that your startup might have asked to be successful, these folks have the answer and they're going to have plenty of time for audience Q&A. Awesome. And uh, I'm going to be doing a session with Ryan Azis, the CRO of Zoom, all about how to build a startup sales team. I'm very, very, very excited about that. Uh, Jordan, tell us more. Who else is coming? The lineup is insane, dude. So we have Tope Oatona. He's the CEO and founder of Calendly. He's going to be nice. talking about bootstrapping, which he did very, very successfully up until recently. We also have Alexa Von Tobel talking about finance for founders, not just how to run your company's finances, but how to manage your own personal finances while you're starting a business, which I think is super, super important. Uh, we also have keys to nailing product market fit with Rahul Vora uh, from Superhuman. It should be just an outstanding lineup, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have a couple of sweeteners that we have in the mix of Jordan Tell people in the equity audience what we have for them. So if you buy a ticket to early stage, you automatically get access to Extra Crunch. So it's kind of a double whammy when it comes to things startup founders need to know. And we're offering our equity audience a 20% discount. So if you use code equity at checkout when you're buying your early stage ticket, you're going to get the most bang for your buck. All right. Well, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. So we'll see you all there. TechCrunch early stage coming in April. It's going to be amazing. All right. Bye.